Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath and this opportunity that we have to come apart from the cares of this life to worship you on this beautiful Sabbath. And Father, as we study this important topic, especially as we approach the final moments of earth's history, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. We pray that we would ground our beliefs upon the Word of God and that I would be hidden behind the cross and that Jesus would be uplifted and Christ would be seen. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It was about when I was 10 years of age, one of my friends' father was diagnosed with cancer. It was a little bit after that, about a year later, that he passed away. And as you could imagine, the family, especially the son, was devastated, as you can imagine, losing his father at such an early age. A week after the funeral, the family was gathered downstairs uh, eating, and they heard upstairs the front door open and close and footsteps go through the foyer. They were quite alarmed and surprised because they had locked the front door, and so they rushed upstairs to see who it was, and, and no one was there. Except in the middle of the floor was his father's shoes. His father who had passed away, his shoes were right there in the middle of the floor. And the question lingers in the minds of numerous individuals that have had similar experiences after the passing of a loved one. Is it possible for a deceased individual to come back and visit their loved one? As I've gone door to door, after I graduated from high school and into college, I met countless individuals that claimed to be visited by their loved one, whether it be a grandmother, brother, sister, husband. They claimed that they come back and visit and talk with them many times face to face. And so we begin today a new two-part series of messages that we've entitled The Afterlife, and we're going to be studying what the Bible says about what happens after we die. And so I invite you to turn with me in your bulletin or open your bulletin. You should have a study guide in there. If you don't have one, uh, do raise your hand and we'll see if someone can get one for us. Sophie, could you help us out and get some people that have raised their hand a study guide at this time? I don't think she sees me out there. Tokozani, could you slip out and tell Sophie to pass out some study guides for us? All right, keep your hand raised. We want to make sure that everyone has a study guide. I'm going to read the top part of your study guide this morning, and this is a brief outline of today's presentation as we study what the Bible says about what happens after we die. The question of death and what happens when one dies are questions that have intrigued mankind since the very dawn of time. Even today, with significant advances in technology, medicine, and science, the question of the mystery of death remains entirely unanswered. Truth be told, science is ill-equipped to deal adequately with the issue of death. Death is more than the ceasing of physiological functions and activities. It has mental, emotional, and certainly spiritual ramifications both for the dying and those who remain. The Bible, 
the Holy Scriptures contains the keys that unlock this mystery. The Bible can provide the kinds of answers that humanity is seeking for concerning the question of death. The Bible alone can illumine the dark door of death. And so we want to go in our Bible study this morning by going to the beginning of the Bible, asking ourselves this fundamental question. You can see it there in your study guide. What does the Bible teach about the idea of the immortal soul? You've heard this notion of the immortality of the soul. And the first place in the Bible where the word soul is mentioned in is, is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. I have it there on the screen. You can fill it out in your study guide. It says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. There it is there in your study guide. Feel free to fill it out as we go through this verse, it says that man breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, and man became a living soul. I want to read on in our study guide. In seeking to unlock the mystery of man's spiritual and physical makeup, it will prove exceedingly helpful to note how mankind was first created in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. According to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, God formed man of two elements, dust and breath, and these two elements converged, and man became a soul. Note that the Bible says that he became a soul, not that he was given or had a soul. This is utterly essential, like a light bulb, which needs both the physical housing and the electricity to create light. Man is a coalescing of the physical body and the breath of God. Now we understand creation. Here it is in brief. So if we were to summarize Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, this is what the Bible says. Dust plus the spirit or the breath of God and man became a soul. So these two entities is what makes up a soul. If you want to see a soul, look at the person next to you. The soul is not a part of us. If you were to look at a car, you don't open up the hood of the car and say, where's the car? The car's the whole thing. And so here is a misunderstanding that many people have. They say our soul is a part of us when the Bible says the soul is the coalescing of these two entities, the dust plus the spirit of God or the breath of God equals a living soul. So this is Simple one plus one mathematics, as you see there in your study guide. Now listen carefully. Death is simply creation in reverse. So upon death, the reverse of this equation happens. The dust returns to gr the ground as it was, and the spirit or the breath of God, the creative power of God, returns to God who gave it. This is what happens at death. Now the Bible uses the word soul 1,600 times and never once does it use the words immortal to describe the soul? This is simply not found in the Bible. Now, when we think of the term immortality, you can see it there in your study guide that the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, that only God is immortal. Furthermore, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, it says, Behold, all souls are mine, as the soul of the Father, so also is the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall, what does it say? It shall die. 
So the Bible says very clearly that a soul is mortal, not immortal, but the soul that's in it, it shall die. It is subject to death. That is what the Bible says. Let's move on in our study guide very quickly. What happens at death? We alluded to this earlier, and this was our scripture reading. Actually, it was out of Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5, but this is from Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return to God who gave it. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Now, some people assume that when the term spirit is used, this is talking about our spirit. On the contrary, when you look at the Hebrew, this is the Hebrew word ruah. And ruah and spirit are the Hebrew terms that are used, or ruah is the Hebrew term that is used. It literally means breath. You can see another part of Scripture, Psalms 104, verse 29. It says, Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled, thou takest away their what? Their breath, they die and return to dust. So you can see that this is creation in reverse. The breath of God, the spirit of God, the creative power of God is what returns to him at death. How much do the dead know? Now, quite naturally, if you assume that when we die, we go to heaven, many people assume that the dead know more than we do. But the Bible is very clear in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5 and 6. But the living know that they will die but the dead know many things. Is that what it says? How much do the dead know? It says the dead know not anything, or the dead know nothing, neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred, their envy is now perished, neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. The Bible is very clear. It says the dead know nothing, zero. Zilch, they know not anything. Now, we want to base our beliefs upon the Word of God, amen? And this is a plain text in Scripture. The dead do not know anything. Now, how about this question? We started it with our sermon here this morning. Can the dead come back and visit us? Can the dead visit me after they have passed through the portals of the tomb. Here's another clear passage. Job chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. You could see it there in your study guide. The eye of him that has seen me shall see me no more. Thine eyes are upon me, I am not. As the cloud is consumed and vanisheth away, so he that goeth down to the grave shall come up no more. He shall return no more to his house neither shall his place know him anymore. The Bible is very clear. It says, look, when you die, you don't return to your home. You don't come back to the place of your original residence. The Bible says he shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. Now, I've been to many funerals where the blessed pastor stands over the casket and says that the deceased individual is up in heaven praising God. Now, I believe that there's many sincere people that love the Lord with all their hearts that believe that their blessed grandmother or grandfather or relative is up in heaven praising God. But what does the Bible say? Psalms 115 verse 17, the dead 
praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. The Bible is crystal clear on this topic, that the dead praise not the Lord. They know not anything. Now, what did Jesus have to say about death? Jesus said that death is asleep, and the book of Job actually correlates with what Jesus said. We'll come to what Jesus said here in a minute. So man lieth down and riseth not again, till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake, nor be raised out of their, what does the Bible say? Out of, the, out of their sleep. Oh, that thou wouldest hidest me in the grave, that thou wouldest keep me secret until thy wrath be past, that thou wouldest appoint me a set time. Remember me, if a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change comes. Here, Job gives the implication that we are awaiting the resurrection in a state of sleep. It says we will wait till our change comes, implying at the resurrection. Now, Jesus was very clear about the nature of death. Lazarus was dead, and here Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, our friend Lazarus sleeps but I go that I may wake him up. The disciples assumed that this was a literal sleep. So they asked him the question. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. They made this statement. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking literally about taking rest in sleep. Jesus called death a sleep. Now, logically speaking, if upon death Lazarus went to heaven... For four days, it would be very cruel for him to come back to this earth. Wouldn't you agree, yes or no? Can you imagine an angel comes up to Lazarus? He's walking on the streets of gold, eating from the tree of life, and suddenly the angel says, taps him on the shoulder and says, "Uh, you got to go back down because Jesus is, is resurrecting your body. It just doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, after Lazarus was raised from the dead, he did not go on a CNN circuit talking about what happened while he was dead. He didn't know anything. Jesus called death asleep. Now, the Bible teaches that death is asleep that lasts until Christ's second coming. Bible writers declare death asleep more than 50 times. Now, this year, I'm reading through the Bible with the Conflict Ages series, and I've just finished the Kings and the Chronicles, and I found something quite fascinating. After the king dies, you know what the Bible says? I'm not going to go through every text, but I just want to read some of them indicating that the Bible is consistent with Jesus claiming that death is like sleep. Here it is, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father. 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 31. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Oh, here's the next slide. All right. And Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Second Kings chapter 10, verse 35. And Jehu slept with his fathers and was buried with him in Samaria. Second Kings chapter 13, verse 9. And Jehoaz slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Now, I could go on and on and on through all 50 references to death being asleep, but you get the point. The Bible is incredibly consistent about this notion that death is like sleep. 
Meaning that if I were to die today, driving down the highway, all right, morbid thought, but let's say I'm driving down the highway, 496, something happens, a semi cuts me off, ah, flash, okay? And let's say the Lord doesn't come for another 30 years. I'm going to pass into what the Bible alludes to is like sleep, meaning that in that moment, I pass outside of experiencing time. I'm not in the grave waiting and saying, oh, I wish the Lord would hurry up and come so that I'll be resurrected. In that moment, I'm driving on 496. If I were to pass away, the next thing I would know, flash, the next moment would be, I pray by the grace of God, the second coming. You'd be like, oh, what just happened? Oh, Jesus is coming in the clouds of glory. Oh, praise the Lord. I'm on the right side. That's how it's going to be. All right? I miss my funeral. Praise God. Okay? I miss the funeral and all the wonderful things that you would, I hope, say about me. All right? <laughs> all of those things, all of those things I miss. I'm at the resurrection. That's why the Bible calls it a sleep. It's like you're extremely tired at night and you hit your pillow and you wake up eight hours later. That's what... Death is like, according to the Bible. It is like sleep. You pass out of consciousness, and the next moment is the resurrection. One of two resurrections, which we'll be talking about more next week, which is a solemn thought, because none of us in this room, unless you have a terminal disease, do not know even the approximate time of your death, which is why... Today is the day to accept Jesus. Amen? Because you just don't know when you're going to pass. Now, there are a couple passages that seem to indicate to the contrary. Now, this is a biblical principle that is important, and it's called hermeneutics. This is the principle of how you interpret the Bible, just a fancy word. Now, when you interpret the Bible, it is important to go to the clear passages first. What kind of passages? The clear passages. Thou shalt not kill. That's clear. There's not any ambiguity to that. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Clear. Now, there are other passages that are not clear. And what you want to do is go to the clear passages first. The other thing that you want to do is go to the majority of passages. In other words, if there are 50 texts that point this way, and there are one or two that are not clear, that seem to point a different way, you want to go with the burden or the weight of evidence. This is what we call proper hermeneutics. Now, some people, what they do is they go to the scriptures, and they go to the most controversial, the most unclear passage, and they build a whole theology on one or two passages to the negation, to the overwhelming weight of evidence of Scripture. This is not proper biblical interpretation. Now, this is a passage that is a little bit ambiguous because of the punctuation of it. I've covered this before. I want to cover it again. Repetition deepens impression. Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. This is to the thief on the cross. Jesus is about to die. He turns to the thief and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. I had the privilege 
or the agony of studying Greek in the seminary. <laughs> One thing you pick up very quickly when you're studying the original languages is that there is no punctuation. The punctuation was added by the translators, by the Bible scholars, and I'm glad they did it. But in this case, the Bible scholars chose to put the comma after you. And that makes a huge difference on the meaning of this passage. Now, some of you may say a comma is such a little thing, big deal, you're making a mountain out of a molehill, but a comma makes a big difference, as you will see by this illustration. A, a woman without her man is nothing. Now, I don't think it's probably over 50% of you that would not agree with this statement. A woman without her man is nothing. Now, let's add a couple commas. A woman without her man is nothing. Now, the commas have reversed this, this statement, all right? A comma can make a big difference upon this. Punctuation makes a difference. Now, where do we put the comma? There's one of two places you can place this comma, and it will change the meeting. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, comma, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the other place that you can place it is, Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Now, the previous one seems to indicate that he's telling the thief, you will be with me today in paradise, in heaven. The other one seems to indicate that Jesus is saying, while I'm hanging on the cross today, at this moment, I want to give you the assurance of salvation. Now, which is it? Do we just flip a coin and determine which one it is? We want to go back to the Bible and see where Jesus was that day. Did Jesus go to heaven in that moment? You can see this by cross-referencing it with another passage in John chapter 20, verse 15 through 17. I'm just going to read the last verse there. Jesus said to her, this is Mary, on Resurrection Sunday, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I have not yet ascended to my Father, indicating he had not gone to heaven at death. Now, just think about this a little bit. If Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not go to heaven at death, why on earth would we assume that we go to heaven on death? If anyone is qualified to go to heaven on death, it would be Jesus. But Jesus himself said, look, I have not yet ascended to my Father. So Jesus was telling the thief Look, while I'm on the cross today, I want to give you the assurance of salvation. And so this is how we logically go through and divide Scripture. The second passage is a little bit more troubling. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3 through 14. And I have the privilege of reading this book, 1 Samuel, not too long ago in my morning devotions. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3 through 14. This is a fascinating account. 1 Samuel chapter 28, and I want you to read this in your own Bible, or the Bible that's provided for you, page 345 in the church Bible. This is near the end of Saul's life. 1 Samuel chapter 28, verse 3. Now Samuel had died. What had he done? He had died. And all Israel lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and encamped at Shunem. 
So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself, put on other clothes. He went with two other men with him and came to the woman by night and said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon me for this thing. Then the woman said, to, said whom shall I bring up to you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. And the woman saw Samuel, and she cried out with a loud voice and spoke to Saul, saying, you have deceived me, for you are Saul. Then the king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said, I saw spirits ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, What is his form? And she said, An old man is coming up and is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and stooped over with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now you can read the rest of that account. They have a little conversation in this seance. Now I want to make a few observations before we conclude what is taking place in this passage. First Samuel chapter 28 verse 13, which we just read. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. This is actually verse 3. Saul had expelled the mediums and spiritists out of the land. Now why did Saul expel the medium and, and spiritists out of the land. Was he just doing this on a whim? Actually, this came from a direct command of God. You can find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 31. It says, give no regard to mediums. This is from the book of Leviticus, book of Moses. And familiar spirits, do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Here Saul, earlier when he was following the Lord, had put out the mediums and spiritists out of the land. Now, it is interesting, when you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, the Bible gives the account of why Saul died. It says, Saul died because he was unfaithful to the Lord. How was he unfaithful to the Lord? He did not keep the word of the Lord and even consulted a what? A medium for guidance indicating that God did not approve of this seance that took place. And the reason, one reason, why Saul died was because he consulted a medium. Another indication you can see in this passage is the Bible says in 28 verse 14, and Saul perceived that it was Samuel. He looked like Samuel. It was his perception that it was Samuel. Now, the natural conclusion that we have to arrive at is that if the individual that people are talking with or having communication with of their loved one is not the person, 
because we know that the dead know not anything, that the dead do not return to their house, who is it that these individuals are communicating with? And this is a quote from Great Controversy 552. He, Satan, has power to bring before men the appearance of their departed friends. It's a solemn thought. Let me read that again. He, Satan, has power to bring before men the appearance of departed friends. The counterfeit is perfect. The familiar look, the words, the tones are reproduced with marvelous distinctness. The pretended visitants from the world of the spirit sometimes utter cautions and warnings which prove to be correct. Then as confidence is gained, they are presented doctrines that directly undermine faith in the scriptures. I believe, friends, that this notion of the immortality of the soul becomes the medium through which the devil uses to communicate with countless individuals that think they are communicating with their loved one when they're really communicating with a demon. Some people would say, David, it really doesn't matter what I believe about what happens after I die. I would say that it matters greatly what you believe. Because if you believe that when you die, you don't know anything, then it leads you to this natural conclusion. But if you believe that when you die, you go to heaven, it's not too far of a jump to assume that that dead person can come back and visit you. And the devil exploits this belief to his advantage. I want to read this statement. This is actually from Mark Finley. He says, one night I was in... Legaspi City, the lovely islands of the Philippines, the base of the Mayan volcano, lecturing in Bicol University. And that night, I talked about spiritualism. That night, I read the Bible text, they will never return to their house. When they go down, they shall not come back. I warned them about spiritualism. That night, the lieutenant one of the arm, of one of the army divisions there, battalions went home, went to sleep, terrible rainstorm. The shadow, shutters began banging on the side of the house, woke him up. He looked above his bed, and there he saw the form of his wife, who had died a few months before. She reached out to him. She said, I'm here, darling. It sounded like his wife. It looked like his wife. But he remembered the text, Job chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. He that goes down to the grave shall come up no more. He shall return no more to his house. And believing the word of God, he said, you are not my wife. And he said, pastor, before my eyes, the light turned to darkness when I said, in the name of Christ, be done from me. This is happening, friends, all over the world. And as we approach the end of time, this notion of the immortality of the soul is going to be used even more by the devil himself to mastermind, to masquerade, and to deceive countless individuals that are sincere. And we need to base every belief upon the word of God. I believe that in the very end of time, there is going to be a deception so great that if you're trusting your experience and your senses, you're going to be deceived. Because here, the lieutenant had to make a decision. It sounded like his wife. It looked like his wife. 
And if the conversation would have gone further, I believe that this woman could have told him things that only him and the wife knew. And based upon that, he could have concluded that his wife had come back to visit him. But basing it upon the word of God, he knew that this was not his wife. And friends, we need to be so grounded in Scripture that even though our experience is telling us one thing, we need to say we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Amen? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, But I am not surprised even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The devil does not come with a pitchfork and horns. He comes many times even quoting Scripture, as you see in the first temptation and the rest of the temptations of Jesus. I want to read the last paragraph of your study guide as we conclude our message today, our study. The first lie recorded in the Bible was told by the father of lies himself. The last paragraph of your study guide. Genesis chapter 3 verse 4 finds Satan whispering those enticing and dangerous words to Eve. You will not surely die. First lie out of the mouth of the devil. You shall not surely die. What a lie. God has said, in the day that you eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. Who told the truth? God, of course. Yet today, there are many, even Christians, who would rather believe the devil's enticing lie than the plain teachings of the word of God. The pagans laid hold on this immortality concept. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all believed in the natural immortality of the soul. Yet it is not biblical, as many of today's most prominent and respected theologians freely admit. So then... Where is Mary, according to the Bible, in the grave awaiting the resurrection? Once again, he has transformed himself into an angel of light. Yes, God has a solution to the problem of death, and that solution is the resurrection at the second coming. Don't you want to be in that number when the saints go marching in? Won't you make that decision right now, today? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and it is here that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. That is going to be the moment that you will have the opportunity to have a reunion with your loved one with the person that you laid in the grave. Won't it be wonderful on that resurrection day? I invite you to stand with me as we prepare to close this morning. Every head bowed and eyes closed. I want to give the opportunity for you to respond to the message this morning. Jesus is coming again. And I want to ask this question. If you were to die today, would you have the assurance of eternal life? Would you know that you are saved? The Bible says we can have the assurance today that we are saved. And I want to give the opportunity this morning, if you are unsure where you will be on that resurrection day, if you were to die today and you want to be sure this morning, you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept you as my Savior. I want to be sure of salvation. I invite you to raise your hand this morning and say, Lord, I want to be sure. I want to accept you as my Savior. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. My final appeal is this. When Jesus comes a second time, we don't want to be the only one in our family. Amen? 
We want our family to be there. We want our children to be there. We want our parents to be there. And perhaps there's someone here today, you have a family member that does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you want to say, Lord Jesus, I don't want to be alone. I have a burden for this family member. Maybe it's a son, maybe it's a daughter, maybe it's a parent, a brother, a sister, whatever it may be. And you would say, Lord Jesus, I don't know how, but I want you to use me. I want you to use me. I want Jesus to shine through me so that that family member can be saved in your kingdom. If that's your desire, I want you to come forward for special prayer this morning. If you want to say, Lord, I want you to use me to reach my family member that doesn't love the Lord. God bless you. God bless you. This is the most important thing in the world. Where are you going to be when Jesus comes a second time? I want my entire family to be there, and you want to be used by the grace of God to reach that individual for Jesus. God bless you. God bless you. is heaven's agenda to save souls for his kingdom. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Bible truth about death. We thank you that you have not left it ambiguous. You have made it crystal clear what happens to those that die. We thank you that death is asleep that our loved ones are not watching us suffer here on earth, but rather they are resting in the tomb awaiting the resurrection. We look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And today, we have a burden for that family member in our life that does not know you. Lord, we have come forward today asking that you use us as a vessel for your kingdom. Lord, do whatever it takes to save our family for your kingdom and for your cause. Let not one son or daughter be lost. Let not one father or mother not be there on that resurrection day. And today, while there is a breath left in our body, we pray that you would help us to be open to your Spirit's leading to reflect the character of Jesus to our family members so they they can be drawn to the foot of the cross. Use us by your grace, by your spirit, and by your power. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.